Good morning. Scripture reading today is Mark 8, 31 through 38. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to serve their life will lose it, save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, as we look to this passage, there's so much in it. There's so many uh, quotable moments and moments that we've heard time and time again, but yet all together Jesus' teaching is pretty um, in- intense and heavy. So help us and guide us as we look to this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to come out with a very bold statement to start. The ways of God are different than the ways of man. Really, that was a real risk taker, wasn't it? I set you up to think, oh, what's, what's going to be controversial there? The ways of God are different than the ways of the world. In Isaiah chapter 55, the, the prophet wrote, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. And to be honest, if you can just take one thing from today, recognizing that God is God and we are not, that will set you up in good standing to have a better week. A better week where you understand who you are and whose you are, recognizing that we do not have the vantage point of the eternal creator, sovereign Lord. But we do have an eternal creator, sovereign Lord, who cares about us, who wants to hear from us and is present with us. But at this moment, this contrast of God's ways are different than our ways. The disciples in this moment with Jesus must have had quite an earth-shattering moment. The disciples learned this in, in what must have been very shocking when he told them, when he began with, to teach them that he must undergo great suffering, that he must be rejected by the elders and the teachers and the chief priests, and that he must be killed. We're so accustomed, I think, to the message of the cross. Here we are in the second Sunday of Lent. And we are just accustomed to the idea of cross and crucifixion. Every week we come to the table and we remember the cross, the crucifixion. We anchor our lives and our Christian identity in the cross and crucifixion so much so that we can almost lose the meaning of the cross and the power of the crucifixion. 
The great hope of the Israelite people at that time was freedom from Rome, from their overlords. The disciples, having seen Jesus do miracles, experienced the, the majesty of his personality, they followed him, and they watched him draw enthusiastic crowds. It would have been totally natural for them to assume that Jesus would somehow challenge the Roman occupation in which they lived. And everything that they'd seen Jesus do and heard him say had given them big, big hopes for the future. And then Jesus comes out with this. Jesus astonished them, dismayed them with the news that contrary to all their hopes and all their expectations, he would indeed now go undergo suffering. He would be rejected. And then he would be killed. And right before this passage, we started in verse 31, but in all cases, we just have to pick a point where we're going to read the scripture and end the scripture reading. But we know that there's usually verses before and often verses after. And right before that, Jesus went with his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he had a question for his followers, for his disciples. He said, who do people say I am? Interesting question. They had plenty of time because, you know, they didn't just get in cars. They didn't have rush hour traffic. They just walked. And when you're walking, you got a lot of time to do some walking and some talking. And he poses the question, who do people, not who do you, who do people say I am? John the Baptist. Others said Elijah. Others think that you're just one of the prophets. You see, there have been some idea that Maybe John the Baptist might have come back and that Jesus would have taken on his spirit since he had been killed by Herod. There's some idea that in the prophets that, that, that the Messiah couldn't come until Elijah had come back. And everybody recognized that Jesus as rabbi was a, was, a pro, was a prophet from the Lord. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter jumped in in classic Peter form, which I really resonate with Peter. I like Peter a lot because he, he speaks then thinks. Sometimes doesn't even get around to thinking. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And then Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about it. Okay? Who do, you say, who do people say I am? Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah. And who is the Messiah? What is the Messiah to the, these people at this time? Again, we are so used to, accustomed to Messiah equals Jesus. Messiah equals Savior of the world. Messiah equals the one who sacrificed himself on the cross. We just get so accustomed to that that we forget that there is a whole context that was different that the disciples expected the Messiah to be. Who was the Messiah? The Christ? He was the coming king to free them from Roman occupation, to restore Israel back to its uh, uh, boundaried, physical, landlocked glory. And he would reign, this Messiah would reign as the king in the new era of God's kingdom. He would usher in a new, golden, peaceful era where God reigned with his people and they were free and under the presence of the Lord and blessings of the Lord. This is what they heard when they heard the heavens were torn open. This is what they heard when, the, from the, the, when Jesus was baptized, when the dove came down upon him and the Lord said, this is my son who I'm, I'm well pleased. They heard that this might be the Messiah. This might be our new king. This might be our rescuer. 
This is what they knew was possible when they saw him heal the sick, cast out the demons, when he could even exert control over weather and waves. Oh, he's the Messiah. He's the one. He can do this. This is what they expected when they heard over and over the message that Jesus preached to every town and every village. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. They heard, he is here. He's come. He's going to overthrow. God's blessing is going to pour out. We're back. This is what they heard when Peter confessed out loud for the first time what they'd all been thinking. You are the Messiah. And that's why they followed him. That's why they devoted their lives to Jesus as their rabbi. And them being his disciples. Can you imagine hearing it for the first time that someone actually said what they'd been thinking? You are the Messiah. And notice, he didn't deny it. I mean, sure, he did this weird thing of saying, well, don't talk about it. But that kind of means we're right. We knew it. We thought it all along. They had their suspicions. But to hear the words for the first time, just how exciting, how exhilarating that must have been. He didn't deny it, but he silenced them, and he confirmed it. And then he followed it up with, and yes, and I'm about to get killed. In the movies, there would be a sound of a record scratching as everything comes to a halt, as everything just stops in their tracks, like, what? And this is such um, stunning news that Peter decides, like, you know, all right, Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? Every pastor knows that one, by the way, as soon as church is over. Oh, Ken, can I, can I talk to you for a second? All right. What's on your mind? Jesus, Peter, what's on your mind? Um, we don't have a record of what he said there, but what we can kind of guess is like, yeah, about that whole you're going to die thing. You need to, it's kind of discouraging the guys. You need to cut that out. I don't think it's really casting the vision of what we uh, what you can do. I mean, we've seen what you can do. We, we know. We know you, Rome is no match for you. We've eaten the fish. We've walked on the water. Well, at least I have, he could say. There's these moments here where Peter's just like, listen, no, this, is, this isn't right. You're not going to get killed. We've seen what power you have and thought you would free us from Roman occupation and restore the glory of God but Jesus responded to him a little bit differently, didn't he? Jesus responded that Peter's opinion was indeed a human way of thinking. A human way of thinking. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, tempter. Get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. That's pretty harsh. It's pretty strong. He shocks them more deeply by letting them know that maybe they too will have to walk this path. Those who follow in Jesus' footsteps will have to deny themselves and take up their cross when the time comes. Wow. 
Jesus is really turning this beautiful moment, this excited, anticipated moment of the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's turning it on their head, and it's like, wait, what? You're going to die? We're going to die? And who brought up the cross? And why are we talking about a cross? Jesus was making it very clear the way of his path, the way of his kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God is near, and this kingdom is going to be one a different way than you expect. The news was so contrary to the disciples' expectations and so difficult to comprehend that Jesus would actually have to repeat it again in chapter 9 and repeat it again in chapter 10. By chapter 9, they'd stopped asking questions. They just heard it and just walked right on. But immediately after, to give you an idea of just how well they heard it, both times in chapter 9 and chapter 10, there's different groupings of them trying to vie to be the ones who sit on the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. Okay, yeah. Oh, oh you, you have to go and... You have to be killed? Cool. So when you're on your throne, um, who kind of gets to sit there? Very good object lesson on how to miss the point. Jesus was making them understand that my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. It's a bitter, bitter pill for the disciples to swallow, but it was necessary. It was necessary that they understand. Otherwise, they would miss the whole point of Jesus's ministry. And I stress that. If we take on a false view of who Jesus is, what he came for, and what he accomplished, and the way he accomplished it. If we miss those pieces, we run the risk of missing Jesus entirely. That he came to give his life for the salvation of us and them. The cross would be the path. The cross would be Jesus' means to his kingdom the cross. If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To take up the cross was neither a pious sentiment nor a temporary disappointment. To take up the cross was not an artistic cultural icon. I remember a time when I, a friend of mine made a, it was the 90s, we all wore hemp necklaces of some sort with some kind of beadage and things and some kind of beads and shells and all that. And this friend made me a hemp necklace. And in it, he had been to, which is, what's Washington's home down in Virginia? Is it Williamsburg, Williamsgate? What's, what is it? Yes, he went there. And while he was at Mount Vernon, there was a, like a tourist gift shop where they sold handmade nails, the kind of nails that they would have used in the building of Mount Vernon. And this kid had gotten his hands on one of these nails. It was about two and a half inches long, sharp as anything on one end. And he stuck it down through that hemp necklace. And he's like, Ken, you want this? I was like, yeah, sure. So I wore it. And then I ran into our pastor. Buck, because he didn't use my first name ever. Buck, tell me about that necklace. And I, you know, stumbled. I'm like, uh, it kind of reminds me of like Jesus and the cross or something, you know? Well, later on, for the record, this pastor spoke in front of thousands of peoples and highlighted his interaction with me, in which he said, Buck, why, tell me about that necklace. And, I, and Buck said, when I think the, the cross has lost its meaning, but when I think, see this nail, and I hold this nail, and I touch this nail, and I think what Jesus did to save me, what he went through, he made me sound so spiritual. And it happened after I'd left Texas and never set foot in Texas again, and I never get, didn't get to reap the rewards of being 
the spiritual man with the necklace with the nail. But there is something about it that the cross has been turned into a piece of art, an icon of a tribe, an icon of people. And there is a rawness to this that the disciples did not share our artistic flair for the cross because the cross was disgusting. It was painful. It was abuse. It was ugly. It was the lowest of the low. Cicero described it in his writings. There is no fitting word that can possibly describe a deed so horrible. And yet Jesus is telling his followers, the kingdom of God is at hand and you're going to follow me and you're going to pick up your cross too. The cross is Jesus's destination and there his followers must follow him. You see, I think it's pretty clear that by our human nature, we want to be prosperous. We want to be strong. We want to be successful. We long to be influential. Jesus had other priorities. Now, what if we replace ourselves with our church? We all want our church to be prosperous and strong and successful. We want our church to be influential. What if Jesus has other priorities? See, because Jesus came, on the other hand, to serve, not to be served. His ways are not our ways, yet he invites us to follow him in his ways. To follow Jesus is to live the life of service to others, to live a life of self-denial, to live a life where we give up control of our lives and give up our attempts to dominate the world around us. It means the opposite of being proud of station, it means the opposite of being uh, uh, seeking status. It means the opposite of inflating ourselves at the expense of others. It's the theology of the cross. The theology of the cross, or to deny oneself, does not mean a fake or false or contrived sense of humility. We don't follow Jesus by just saying, woe is me, I'm such a depraved person, and by just beating ourselves down so that we know that we've let everybody else know that we are the greater sinner than they are. But instead, we're called to do the very best that we can with the talents, with the abilities and the opportunities where God puts us. But to deny oneself means to keep our priorities in harmony with what Jesus told us to do. To keep our priorities in harmony with the two greatest commandments. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. All the law, all the prophets hang on those two commandments. We live in a world that loves cliff notes, don't we? Some generation knows them as spark notes. So now we have blinkists. We have just quick, concise summaries to give us the gist so that we get the main point. Have you used those before? In my last job, I had a new boss who assigned me a book that he thought was very inspirational. And I was so glad for Blinkist at that moment. Because on my drive to work, I listened to a, a recap that was 15 minutes long, but seven and a half on double speed. And I came in and said, great book. Here's the point. Wow, you read it in one day? I'm like, sure. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Mm, yes. The cliff notes of Jesus' kingdom can be found in love God holistically, wholeheartedly, and purely, and then love your neighbor. Not just the neighbors you like, not just the neighbors you uh, want, but love your neighbor. 
The theology of the cross tells us to deny ourselves and keep our priorities in harmony with Christ. So this Lenten season, we are reminded again to lose our lives. To lose our lives so that we may find life. To side with God. To side with Christ in his ways. To forego the gathering and collecting of power. To forego the need for reward and status. To forego the right to control. To dominate. To feel secure. This is all the more appropriate in our current culture, in our current times, in the current year that we find ourselves in, in our country. Following Jesus means not succumbing to the temptation of human things like Peter did. Not succumbing to a vision of Christ's kingdom the way that Peter wanted to impose back on Jesus. The human things, the human ways, the get-behind-me-Satan ways. Our goal is not to gather the numbers, not to gather the mass, not to procure power. Our, 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 our ways are not evicting the oppressors through might or shrewd work or key people in positions or, or worse, through violence. If anybody ever says that we need to protect God and his ways and offer violence as an option, politely just start backing up and walk away from that conversation. If they are saying it on a, on a source of media that you have, turn it off. And we are going to be tempted. You are going to be tempted to embrace human ways about Jesus' kingdom this year from well-meaning, trust, trusted Christian folks. It's going to happen. We are going to face it. And we have to hear fresh from Jesus. My way is the way of the cross, not dominion or domination through human ways. The fact is that he says, get behind me, Satan, to it. it tells you the severity and strength that Jesus felt about this. But one thing that we missed, take note. And I wonder if the disciples missed it too when Jesus told them that he had to go to suffer to be betrayed, to be killed, but then after three days, rise. There is a sure ray of hope in what Jesus said that day, and then also again in chapter 9 and also again in chapter 10. Jesus will be killed, but he will also rise. And furthermore, those who lose their lives for Jesus' sake will also find their lives, what? Saved. There is a promise in this that if we just go the way of Jesus, it's not going to be the way you expect, but it is the way to life. It is the way to health. It is the way to his kingdom. And we know it's his kingdom because he went in and through and was consumed by the cross, consumed by death, and rose again, declaring its defeat because death could not handle Christ in the belly. But Jesus broke through and broke the mold and broke and destroyed death and sin once and for all. And that, friends, is our hope. Not because we can amass a tribe, but because Jesus rose and we are resurrection people with him. Let us anchor our loves, our affections, and our priorities as we love through the cross. And it's hard and we need to work. And it's easy to slip off the rails and start 
taking human ways and Jesusifying them for a minute. I do it all the time, and I need you to correct me. And I, you do it all the time, and I, you'll need each other to correct you. But the hope of the resurrection is heavy, isn't it? It's tiring. It's taxing. It's a weight. Sometimes our <clears throat> certain future feels uncertain, and it's exhausting, waiting. And yet we believe, because the hope of the resurrection reflects how life is and will be. Life is ambiguous, unpredictable, and mysterious, but following Jesus never meant making life be easy, did it? Following Jesus never made life predictable or obvious, but rather the resurrection hope validates who we are in the life that we live as Christian new creation community. Because we are seen by God. We are filled by his presence. We are sealed by his spirit. We are identified under his name, and we are collected together as a family as John puts it to me often, a family of certain, of, 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 how's it go, John? We are a collection of known enemies, united by Christ into a family. When we live in the resurrection power, we are already living the taste of the new creation life. We don't have to look to the human ways because we are already tasting the new kingdom. May we meditate on that this Lenten season. Father, help us to live lives like this that help us to uh, learn how to love. Help us to learn how to care. Help us to learn how to identify.